Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, uh, Cody's in the back and Zach's in the back with extra Bibles. So just slip up your hand and they'll bring you one if you'd like a hard copy to look off of. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 is where we're going to begin reading together this morning. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and then we're going to read all the way down into verse 41. Verses 9 through 37 is what Drew preached on last week, and we're going to focus predominantly on verses 38 through 41 this week. So here's what God's word says. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked him, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So that was last week's text. Now look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray that the Lord would give us understanding. Lord, we come to this text this morning, um, which is often sort of read through quickly and, and uh, sort of seems, I don't know, out of place, difficult to apply, um, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this text in its context, and Father, you would help us to understand why you, the, the sovereign one over the universe, would have us read it this morning, and why you would have us meditate on these words this morning in this moment, God. I pray that this moment would be a miracle in which we recognize, God, you are speaking to us through verses on a page you've preserved for 2,000 years, God. 
Father, we pray for your spirit to be active this morning in, in me as the speaker of this word and then your people as listeners of this word. Help us to hear, understand, and apply what you have spoken. Father, I pray for the one in this room that is an unbeliever, that they would catch a vision for the kingdom of God and what you're inviting them into. And I pray for the believer that they would catch a vision for the kingdom of God beyond themselves. And they would join your work in the world, we pray. Do these things in our midst, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything about Jesus' message in the Gospel of Mark is countercultural. Everything about what Jesus said he came to do and accomplish and the way that he was going to accomplish ran against the natural inclinations of the culture in the first century. In fact, they run contradictory to the natural instincts of my heart. We are studying in the Gospel of Mark a cyclical pattern. It happens three times where Jesus says, this is what I've come to do. And it's so different than his disciples are ready to receive that they do not understand it in pretty bad ways. And then Jesus corrects them on not only what Jesus is going to do, but what they are going to do in following him. And so we've seen this pattern already ready in Mark chapter 8. We're now we're seeing it again in Mark chapter 9. Later we'll see it again in Mark chapter 10. Jesus teaches the disciples truth about his missions. They don't get it. Jesus corrects them and then applies the message to their lives. So verse 31 was the clarity of, hey, this is why I'm here. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The intention is clear. The mission is plain. Jesus has come to willingly lay down his life and die. Jesus has come to do the opposite of what humanity naturally does. So, from the beginning, since Genesis, we naturally want to elevate ourselves and put ourselves into the place of high honor. We want to put ourselves on the throne. We want to put ourselves on a throne that is not rightfully ours, to be seen, obeyed, listened to, praised. Yet, here's Jesus, the one who, according to the rest of the Gospel of Mark that we've seen, has the authority over the weather, over all the spiritual forces in the world, over every sickness. This Jesus is the king of the universe. Apparently, Jesus is now saying, I am the king of the universe, but I stepped off of that throne into this world to die for my subjects. <laughs> and that is different, a different way of achieving glory than our human hearts naturally are inclined to. The disciples don't get it. In fact, they begin to argue about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Last week, Drew talked to us about true greatness in the kingdom of God, not being the things that are heralded or seen, but the things that, like taking a small child to care for them when they cannot care for you, in return. Jesus emphasizes things like humility and servanthood. A countercultural message and mission. And now in today's passage, 
we're still in that context of the disciples not really grasping or understanding. But in today's, con- in today's text, we see disciples striving for their own greatness once again, but in a different way. So, so look at verse 38 with me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So a couple questions rise to the surface of verse 38. Firstly, who's the man who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus? Well, I think that we need to remember here what the disciples needed to remember here, and it's the fact that the 12 were not the only people who were responding positively to Jesus. Jesus had been teaching, ministering, and healing for some time at this point. He had traveled to a number of villages and towns. At one point, he preached to 5,000 people and fed them. Another point, he preached to 4,000 people and fed them. Along the way, they've met many people who've come to Jesus in faith, asking for his help. Consider just the people Mark has included in the story, which is not all the people. I mean, thus far, we've seen the leper healed, the paralytic, the man with a withered hand, the man consumed with a legion of demons, the woman who reached out and touched his garment, Jairus and his healed daughter, the Seraphonician woman, the deaf man, the blind man, the young boy who had a demon causing him to have epileptic-like seizures. All these people and more met Jesus, experienced the power of Jesus, and presumably they went on about their lives believing that they had met the promised one, the, the one true Jesus. They went back to their lives and their towns and their jobs, and some of them, no doubt, would have been confronted with things in their life again. And the question would be, what would they do? What would you do if your family member had been, had been confronted with demons their whole life, and you saw Jesus cast them out, and Jesus has traveled to another town, and then you're confronted with demons again? What, what, what steps do you take? What, what possibly do you do in that moment? Well, verse 38 tells us that at least somebody, some new follower of Jesus, did this. Verse 38, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. So apparently there was somebody thrust into a situation who then cried out on the name of Jesus because they knew that's where the power was. And, and, and they, they cried out for Jesus to... To, to come and help in this situation to remove this demon, and the demon ran. So through their faith in Jesus and the proclamation uh, that Jesus has the ultimate power, God Almighty worked on their behalf. I mean, an incredible miracle pointing to all the more to the supremacy of Jesus. So what's the problem? Why would the disciples try to stop someone doing a great work in the name of Jesus. Well, there's a key phrase at the end of verse 38. John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Notice the word us. John lumps himself and the 12 with Jesus as if everyone's supposed to follow the 12 plus Jesus. 
Now, remember just a few paragraphs prior, just a couple weeks ago, the disciples were unable to cast out a demon because they were relying on themselves too much, and Jesus has to come in and sort out all the chaos and says, you guys probably should have prayed. (laughs) But now John has a problem with somebody else doing what they were incapable of doing because they were not following them who had been unable to do it. Judging from the context, John's motives here do not seem to be the purest. It appears that there may be, just maybe, some pride going on here. Perhaps even some jealousy going on here. John's concern here does not seem to be purely about the kingdom of Jesus. It seems to be a concern about the kingdom of John. And the kingdom of the other disciples. Listen to how one commentator puts it. One author says this. In complete disregard of the lesson from the preceding story. John regards his call as a disciple. Not as a call to service. But one as entitlement of privilege and exclusion. John reports that the independent exorcist was not following us. And it's depressingly ironic. We should expect him to say, because he was not following you, Jesus. Is it not a little presumptuous at this stage of discipleship for John to think himself and the other disciples worthy of being followed? This is yet another echo of their inflated self-importance. I think this passage leads us to this first truth. Truth number one, God's kingdom does not revolve around us. Already from the gate, you're like, man, I'm going to be encouraged this morning. Just encouraged. (laughs) God's kingdom does not revolve around us. We Christians worship a God who is eternal. I'll say that again. We worship a God who is eternal, who has no beginning and no end. A God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, a God who is fully present in all places and fully capable of working in billions of people's lives simultaneously. Jesus' ministry and message repentance, faith, forgiveness, was not only for John and the twelve in the first century. It's for us in the 21st century. For our children, our children's children, for people in parts of the globe we don't even know exist. One of the most profound realities to consider in the world is the fact that God is doing so many things at one time. I mean, just consider the miracle of prayer. Me and Greg were talking about this in preparation for community group the other night. We were talking about the uh, omnipresence of God. The, the, the fact that God hears our prayers and speaks to us in his word. But when I pray, I have the full attention of God. While at the same time, millions of people around the planet may be praying to him as well. And they have the full attention of God. I don't have a little sliver of God's divided attention, and everyone else is sort of split between a million others. His, his attention, no, 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 I have the full divine attention of God of the universe. He's so beyond our comprehension, he's able to fully and entirely hear the prayers of billions of people simultaneously. 
I can't even check my phone and understand what my wife just said at the same time. She will vouch for that big time. (laughs) He is providentially working in the incalculable details of your life at the same time that he's providentially working in the incalculable details of the newest believer in the smallest country in Southeast Asia that you've never even heard of. Our God is a very big God, and his kingdom of believers in Jesus is a big kingdom that he's expanding to every corner of the globe, to every generation. But it is our tendency, our temptation to think that God's kingdom revolves around us and our church and what God's doing or not doing in me personally or my circle of influence. And God's not only doing more in your life than you realize, (laughs) he's doing more in the life of every person in this room than you realize and the people you don't even know exist. One of the great tests of true kingdom-mindedness is whether we are able to truly and genuinely celebrate what God is doing in someone else's life and ministry that's totally unconnected to us. All of us, by nature, we're, we're, we are naturally kingdom builders. I mean, in, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, bear my image, be fruitful and multiply, spread to the ends of the earth, be my representatives, my my. my my representatives on the planet build a kingdom which gives glory to God. But sin corrupts that desire. So that in our sin, we do have a desire to make an image known, but it's ours. We do have a desire to achieve larger rule and reign, but it's our control that we want to extend, our power that we want to extend, our recognition. We want the borders of the kingdom of me to always be expanding. This is the motivation behind things like slander and gossip. As we talk badly about another, we simultaneously build ourselves up to put ourselves on display as the model example for humanity. It's the motivation behind some of our ambition, the accomplishments and the accolades we desire. They're not totally pure ambitions. Our desires always have mixed within them ambitions for our own glory, to prove to others that we are a certain way, to build a statue to ourselves according to the image that we would like to be worshipped by others. This is the cause of bitterness Perhaps why you're so quick to be offended and so slow to forgive. The too easily offended are almost always those who actually think too much of themselves and their own kingdom. We're often offended past the point of forgiveness because we see someone else's failure to treat us the way we think we deserve to be treated as the ultimate act of sin. (laughs) If you've done something to me, you have committed blasphemy of Brandon Langley. And therefore, I will not forgive you because you've infringed on the kingdom that I'm building. Ask yourself that. Am I, am I more often offended than someone taking offense at me? Am I ever admitting failures or am I always pointing out someone else's? 
God's kingdom does not revolve around us, but, but sin causes us to believe and live as if it does. So, so for John, rather than rejoicing in the fact that God was at work and another brother in the name of Jesus doing wonderful things, John shows disdain for that work because it wasn't connected to him. John misses the glory and joy of kingdom expanding because he's too concerned with the kingdom of John in this moment. And Jesus corrects him. And look at verse 39. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Truth number two, God's kingdom unites around Jesus and his mission. So Jesus argues that the individual they tried to stop for ministering is actually an individual who's striving for the same things. For starters, he actually did a mighty work, like undeniable, mighty work, that like God used this person. Apparently, the individual he really rebuked and cast out a demon. Not only did he do it, but he did it in the name of Jesus for the purpose of proclaiming, displaying the person and power of Jesus, not himself. And then Jesus argues that such an individual belongs to Christ. In other words, John, the important thing is not whether or not they follow you. The important thing is whether or not they follow the same Jesus. Jesus says the one who's not against us is for us. In other words, this brother who is doing ministry in the name of Jesus is not in competition to us. He's not working and striving so he can overcome us. He is for us because he is for Christ Jesus. And he wants what we want. The glory of Jesus put on display. He is not a competitor, but a co-laborer for the same purpose which unites us, which is Jesus Christ. Now, there should be a certain unity that accompanies those who labor in the name of Jesus, no matter where they live or what differences may try to divide them. And, and we miss this. I mean, we miss this as individuals. We let personalities divide us. <laughs> we let very small, inconsequential disagreements about how particular situations should be handled divide us rather than allowing the most important thing in the universe, the same Heavenly Father and the same Christ's blood who was shed for me, unite us. Not only do individuals miss this, but we miss this as churches in America, like church culture in America. Churches here in America can unintentionally become their own little self-interested kingdom with no care for other churches or the mission in society at large. Modern churches... We, we, we're so influenced by the competitive nature of capitalism and uh, uh, businesses that compete, that market against one another, and they're fighting for the same constituency, that, that churches, they, they have their own brand, right? 
their own logos and graphics and websites and slogans. They have their own culture. They have their own mascots of idolized preachers whom everybody sees but doesn't truly know. Modern churches, if they're not careful, they can begin to think that they're the only church in the world and the only Christians in the world that God is using. And the church can wrongly and unintentionally conclude God's primary work is through us. So they turn inward. They forget about God's mission, not simply to expand the kingdom in their own little church, in their own little neighborhood, under one leader. But they forget that God is working to get the name of Jesus to put on display through local churches in every part of the world. And, And we're a small part of it. Churches... Just like the disciples can become arrogant that they've received the grace of God and that God, by His grace, might be using them to do anything. What a frightening thing to, to, to find pride in the fact that we are totally depraved sinners deserving of nothing <laughs> and God's using us to expand His kingdom anyways. The mission we have modeled for us throughout the New Testament is, uh, is different. I mean, the mission that we have modeled for us throughout the New Testament is one of cooperation and companionship with other churches and other believers to fill the Great Commission. Throughout the New Testament, believers in Jesus genuinely and selflessly care about the gospel getting out to the world, no matter who's doing it. I mean, in the New Testament, believers support and even pour themselves out for kingdom-expanding work in other churches and other cities just because they love Jesus. Just consider Paul's encouragement. Listen to a couple examples. Paul's writing back to the Corinthian church as they give money to help the Jerusalem church um, who's suffering from famine. Paul says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Consider Paul's relationship with the Roman church as he writes to them before he gets there saying, I'm hoping that you will help me get the gospel to Spain. He writes in Romans 15, Now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At the present... However, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. When you hear this, like, Paul's never even met many of these Roman Christians, this Roman church, and he's saying, I look forward to the joy of spending time with you, and I'm hoping you will actually send me to get to the gospel of Spain because they've never heard how good this news is. It's not that they're going to get a return on investment in this situation. Spain's not going to like, <laughs> it's not like, okay, we'll help you, Paul, but they got to like send money back to us. No, no, no. There's just a selfless care and love for the kingdom of God. Lord, use me any way that you please. We want to see people know Jesus in Spain. We don't even speak their language, but we want them to know Jesus too. Philippians chapter 2 
Paul writes thanking the Philippians for their support, and he even offers to send one of his own precious friends and disciples to help them. Philippians chapter 2, 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel, and I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see who will go with me. Here's a, here's a brother that I love, whom I, I, I have seen come to faith. He's like a son to me, and my hope is to part ways with him because I care more about the kingdom of God than the kingdom of Paul. The New Testament is full of examples of believers in Jesus from different cities, cultures, united around one Jesus for one mission. This should be the culture of our church. That the most important thing about us is that we're saved by the same blood of Jesus. And that same blood of Jesus covers a multitude of sins not just between us and the Lord, but between us and each other. This kingdom-mindedness that we see, this unity around Jesus, it's why two weeks ago, like-minded churches from Miami came up and they drove, what, 15 hours to St. Rose, Louisiana to help us continue disaster relief efforts. That's why next week we've got a group of pastors and members from Aberdeen, Mississippi coming to help us uh, with disaster relief efforts here at the church. This is why a group of us will be going to Peru in May to train pastors and their wives in the Amazon jungle. This is why we invite Julio to study and be discipled here so that, so that he can be a part of healthy church planting in Southeast Asia, and we might just get to be a, play a small part in it as we send him back with the glory of the gospel to proclaim. This is why, uh, this is why many of you, maybe you don't know this, we've been striving to help First Baptist Church of Luling over the last several months. I mean, for those of you who don't know, First Baptist Church of Luling, I mean, what, it's 15 minutes from here. They've been without a pastor for two years. They lost their pastor right before COVID. And then they got hit hard by the hurricane. And they got a sanctuary that seats, I don't know what, 200-something people, and they've got about 30 older people in attendance. And they're asking, what in the world do we do? And so they reached out to our church because they knew the story of First Baptist Church of St. Rose. And they said, how can you help us? And so we've been meeting with them regularly. I'll be preaching there on March 6th, doing a training over there for five or six weeks on the doctrine of the church, because we don't just care that the name of Jesus be put on display in St. Rose. We want it to be put on display in Luling, too. And there's any way that this fellowship can help that fellowship put on display the glory of Christ, then praise the Lord, let's do it. I, if, if they, I don't know what will happen with that situation, what they'll decide to do. If they decide to be a new replant or revitalization and they need more members, I'm going to charge some of you guys, sell your house, move to Luling. We're starting a church over there. I love you, but move for the glory of God, Right? The kingdom of God unites around Jesus and his mission. Not one church, one leader, one community. Therefore, we serve and we encourage and we build up because there's eternal reward in it. Because we're not living for this kingdom. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Truth number three, Christ rewards 
kingdom-mindedness. Christ rewards kingdom-mindedness. Jesus emphasizes two things with this example. The act of giving a cup of water and the motivation being just that they belong to Christ. In other words, Jesus emphasizes the reward found in kingdom-mindedness. Kingdom-mindedness is seen in acts of service, no matter how small and insignificant. Acts of service that are not motivated by personal gain, but rather an eternal return in the next life. Jesus says there is reward that cannot be lost when we simply serve in order to serve because we love Jesus and his mission. There is unfailing reward, Jesus says, not just in the big glorious moments of preaching to thousands, but in the smallest of moments in handing a cup of water because they're a brother or sister in Christ. There is eternal glory and reward when you extend forgiveness to a brother or sister in Christ. Eternal glory in the meal train that we're setting up for crea- that, that we're setting up for Clarence, who has surgery tomorrow and will be on bed rest for the next several months. There's glory in that casserole. Amen. There is eternal glory in tarping a roof or handing out supplies or gutting a house. There's eternal glory when you watch someone else's children, not out of personal gain, but just to support your fellow believer. Selfish plug to get some more babysitters. Amen. I was encouraged. I was encouraged this week. I was having uh, lunch with Darren Godbold this week. Sorry to throw you out there, brother. Uh, Darren and Natalie uh, are going, they have five children. And he told me at, at lunch this week that next weekend they're watching Terry Tell Show's four children at his house for three days so Terry and Katie can get away on a much, much needed break after this hurricane and the craziness. Um, so that's nine children in one house for three days for the glory of the Lord. They will by no means lose their reward in heaven. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? There's, a ter- there's eternal glory in, in simple things, like encouragement of a fellow Christian or the simple act of listening to someone. Not because you like them or you're really interested in what they have to say, but because the, Jesus died for them. And they're valuable. Kingdom minus is displayed when we serve and pour ourselves out, not necessarily to gain or to expand our kingdom, but simply to see the God the kingdom of God expanded in someone else's heart or through someone else's church on the other side of the world. Let me ask you this question, though. Do you think like this? Are the guiding priorities of your life the kingdom of God that is bigger than even your life, the, the small span of life you have, do you, do, you, do you make decisions this way? Do you consider valuable the same things that Jesus considers valuable? I want to I leave you this morning with a few takeaways. Four takeaways. Number one, <clears throat> ask God to test your ambitions. Ask God to test your ambitions. We are always, always, always conflicted individuals as Christians. There is always within us a sinful flesh waging war for selfish gain 
and a powerful Holy Spirit pointing us to the truth of God's word and God's way. There's always a mixture of pure desire and selfish ambition. I'm sure there was a measure of John's concern here with this man that was pure. Perhaps he's concerned that the individual would corrupt the message or that he was trying to draw attention away from Jesus. But Jesus' response plus the context shows that there's more going on in John's heart. As there always is more going on in our hearts. More that we can't even really recognize or parse out by ourselves. And so the disposition that we take as Christians, even when we try to do good things for the Lord, is to say, Lord, test my heart. (laughs) Like, test my ambitions. Make sure I'm living for the right kingdom here. Number two, pray for the mission of God through others. So one of the ways that we cultivate kingdom-mindedness is just through our prayers. Our prayers shift from God, give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this, to Lord, I pray for them, them, them. I mean, you pray for others to grow spiritually. You pray for the salvation of others. You pray for our church and its ministries. You pray for other churches in other parts of the world. You pray for missionaries and for unreached people groups whom you may never meet. And as you pray for God's kingdom in a big world, your sense of your own little kingdom will shrink and your sense of God's kingdom will grow. I was, I was challenged by something that a pastor said uh, one day and he's pastor from Washington, D.C., he said, he said, you pray for, for revival and spiritual awakening in your community all the time. He asked, would you be just as joyful if God did it, but he did it through someone else's church? That's a revealing question. You're praying for someone's salvation. Would you be just as happy if he did it, but he did it through somebody else? Number three, rest in the bigness of God and his kingdom. So when you consider the great need of the world, it can be overwhelming. I mean, you're talking two billion people live in places where they may never hear the message of Jesus. And we are called to go and make disciples of all nations. We're called to pursue that mission faithfully with our whole lives, but there is far more to be done than we could ever do. There's far more to be done on St. Rose Avenue and Oak Street than we could ever do. You you can either be overwhelmed by that and shut down, or you can rest in that. That God has not called me to be Savior of the world, nor has He called me to be God over the world, or over an individual, or over whether my family comes to faith in Christ. He has called me to be obedient and faithful with what he's put in front of me. And that's freeing. I'm not the king. And it doesn't rest on my shoulders. I'm simply a servant in the king's court that he gives orders to. And he's the one who secures the outcome. And that's a peaceful thought as I pour myself out for the kingdom. That it's not up to me. That God's doing stuff in people that I don't even know. That the person I'm pleading with for their salvation and sharing the gospel with, and they're not listening to me a lick. Like, like God, in a moment, could bring a Christian into their lives at their workplace, and they could fall on their face and repent and believe, and me just hear about it years later. I'm just, I, I, I just do, I try to be faithful, right, with what God's put in front of me, and then I just trust the king of the universe to do what he does. 
And number four, finally, uh, cherish Christ-centered unity. Cherish Christ-centered unity. There will always be people in your family, your life, even in your church, who you have difficulty loving. There will always be people in your family, your life, even in your church, with whom you disagree strongly on some matters that are important, but agree with them on the main things that are most important. And one of the things that puts the display of the gospel message of Jesus and his kingdom, one, one of the things that just puts the power on display is our ability to look past minor differences and our ability to love in unity and work together for the mission because we've been saved by the same gospel. We proclaim to the world our gospel is the most important thing in the world when we unite with people who are not necessarily like us in every way, but they're like us in this way that they believe that Jesus alone saves. For the last 2,000 years, the church has partaken in a particular act to symbolize our unity around the person and work of Jesus and our unity with God, and that act is the Lord's Supper. And so we're actually going to do that together this morning. This is the first time we've done it on a Sunday morning since COVID. We've been doing this in our member meetings every other month, um, but Today's the first time that we get to do this sort of publicly as a gathering. And I just want you to listen to how Paul emphasizes the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. He says, The cup of the blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. On the night, of, uh, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, his disciples came together. They were celebrating the Passover meal, which was designed to celebrate God's redemption of them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and celebrating it their whole lives as a moment of corporate identity, that we're the people whom God has saved, and they remembered what he did. And Jesus sat down with the disciples to remember what God had done back in Exodus, but Jesus applies new meaning to it. And he takes the bread and he breaks it before them and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And he takes the cup and he pours it out and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. And he says, take and eat. And he says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's, the Lord's Supper became for the early church the moment where they come together to remember that they sit around the same table feasting on the same salvation. Back then it would have done, uh, normally been done in a full meal where they're celebrating and laughing, laughing and joyfully uh, thinking about this forgiveness and freedom they have through faith in Jesus and the blood that was shed on the cross. We don't have that. We have nasty tasting little cups with wafers that we're going to partake in, but the symbolism is the same. That as each of us partake and we eat of that bread and we drink of that cup, we all eat of the same bread and drink of the same cup, saved by the same blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So we're going to do that this morning, but before we do that, I, I, this act of the Lord's Supper, it's this opportunity to confess our sins, rest in the forgiveness that we know we have in Jesus, um, but there's also this other function that the Lord's Supper serves. It serves as sort of a dividing line in the room. And Paul gives this warning in 1 Corinthians 11 
to not partake of this in an unworthy manner. This, this supper is meant for Christians to remember the salvation that they hold to. But I want to ask you, if you're not a Christian, or if you are not sure if you're a Christian, you're not a born-again, baptized believer in Jesus, following Jesus, I'm going to ask you just to not partake. Because this is a symbol of our inclusion in the same salvation. And the only way you're included in this salvation is if you confess your sins to a holy God and believe in the forgiveness God has provided through Jesus alone. And you follow Jesus. So, so if you've not repented of your sin and put faith in Jesus, just pass, there's, pass the basket along, don't partake, and sit and do business with God. And pray and ask, am I a partaker of the same cup? Am I, am I unified by this same Jesus? And so for the rest of us, we celebrate. For those who have not put faith in, you talk to God and you plead with him to save you. And if you do that before it's time to partake, hey, baby, that's uh, partake. Because salvation is not a one, two, three step that you got to go through. Salvation is a fall on your face before God and say, save me through the blood of Jesus. And he saves you. And you become one of us. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go into a time of prayer. And uh, I'm going to ask our ushers uh, to go ahead and come forward that have the, uh, the cups with the wafers. And I'm going to go into a time of, time of uh, prayer, and they're going to hand those out, and we're going to stand up and sing a song together. Um, at, at the end of that song, uh, after we've prayed and we've done business with God, Drew is going to lead us to partake of it all together at the same time, okay? More symbolism of that unity together. Uh, and then we're going to end with one more song, proclaiming our salvation uh, in Christ. And so um, let me pray for us, and then these brothers are going to uh, hand these out. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much that the kingdom, it does not revolve around us, but it revolves around King Jesus. We pray as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper, just as a symbol of our uni unity together, the forgiveness that we share in Christ. God, we pray that uh, you would help us to worship you in spirit and truth. God, we pray that even now we would ask you to search our hearts, um, even now that you would test our ambitions. And Father, we, we ask that you would help us to remember what Jesus has done for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.